0: Lord, we know that where two or more are gathered, you're on a name. We know that you are with us always. Uh, We ask especially that your presence be on us, that you send your spirit down, and help me to uh, talk in a way that these people understand, and we have a wonderful night. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the first things that uh, Jessica did when she called me yesterday, she said, do you have a bio? And I said, no, (laughs) because I hate bios, I hate doing them. I had to do it when I became a deacon, I had to do it. I've been involved in community theater and they always ask for a bio and I just hate to do them. So I thought what I would do is first tell you a little bit about myself and then we'll get into the real topic only because the topic's real short and this way it'll be, seem like a good speech. Um, I was born in Philadelphia, raised there, Catholic school, grade school, Catholic high school, not Catholic college because by the time I got out of high school, I was sick of it. And um, I don't think I saw a church again until I got married. Um, But that was me, it was just how I felt. Um, Luckily, um, my wife was Catholic and she said, we're gonna go to church and I said, okay, we, lived about a block away from the church in a small town that we were at. And um, so we would walk to church. And when we had my son, um, she claimed, I mean, I thought he was possessed because every time we walked into the church he would start crying. And my wife claimed that I pinched him just so I could take him home and I wouldn't have to go to church again, but that wasn't necessarily true. Uh, When I was 29 or 30, we came to visit my sister-in-law and her husband, had, her husband had been transferred down to Atlanta. So we came down for a vacation and uh, she said, why don't you apply for a job here? And I did and I got it. Um, so I went. At the time I was working at Princeton University in the finance office and then I transferred and I got a job at Georgia Tech um, in the finance office. And I hated it. but. Um, when we moved down here, it was we belonged to we or joined this uh, very small parish. And I remember one of the first Sundays I went, somebody came up to me. This is like, I feel like I should be singing a song here. It is very no, we're not going to go in. Um, so we joined this very small parish, and and within a couple Sundays, somebody came up to me and said, Would you like to be on the finance council? I heard you're a finance person. I said, Okay, yeah, no problem. Uh, and then I didn't hear from him for a couple months. And then he came up to me again and he said, do you still want to be on the Finance Council? And I said, sure, uh, yeah, that's who else is on it? And he said, well, I'm on it, now you're on it, and I'm leaving. <laughs> so um, the Finance Council was really just doing the books for this small parish. But through that, I got to know the CFO of the, dio- the Archdiocese down there. And when I determined that I was really tired of Georgia Tech I called him up and said, do you know anybody who could use an accountant? And he said, well I could, but I need somebody who knows fund accounting, which is a, kind of a specific college issues and churches. So I said, well, I've been using it you know, for seven years now. And he said, okay. So I went down, I interviewed and I got the job. I worked for the Archdiocese of Atlanta for about 30 years. Uh, right before I got ordained, I decided it would be easier to move out to a parish. I found a wonderful parish out in Marietta, Georgia that was very progressive. Um, and I just, the, the pastor was just wonderful and I, and I just loved working there. He gave me an opportunity to do many things there, mostly just anything I wanted to do. Um, one of the things that I was working on there was uh, a group called Stand Up For Kids. And we would go out to um, inner city Atlanta and try to find homeless kids, which really wasn't hard to do. And we would give them some clothing and, uh, and some food and the opportunity to um, visit the center that, that they had there. And there they could get a shower and a change of clothes and they could work on a computer if they were so inclined, if they were looking for a job or whatever. Um, and so that was very rewarding. One of the things, I don't know if you are familiar with um, Atlanta, but on the way, if you go south of Atlanta, out like toward the airport, um, 75 and 85, it's not me, is it? 75 and 85 uh, and 20 all kind of come together. And there's this whole complex of bridges. Underneath these bridges is this whole complex of tents and cardboard houses where people live. Uh, we had somebody come there from uh, Catholic register to do an article and he said he hadn't seen anything like that since he had been in Beirut but uh, and that was where we would get um, a lot of our help there about a year and a half ago we got a new pastor at our and him and I did not get along very well uh, it was all his fault <laughs> but uh, i was i was at a time when i could retire my daughter uh who was a mountain person was living up here so my wife and i moved up to uh, help her out and um i signed up i I called ahead and i was looking for parishes that would need a deacon and i called I, i noticed that on the basilica there was no deacons listed so i called them up and i said is that intentional or do you really want a deacon and they're like no no we could use one so i came up and i talked with father thomas and and so now i work at the basilica and it's it's a wonderful thing here um the things i do as a deacon here i i work or volunteer at the hospital on monday and wednesday mornings and um we're looking into matt can tell you we're trying to look into doing doing something with the homeless but um it seems like there's a lot of thing, a lot of groups that are working with the homeless. So we're trying to find our our niche with that. Um, and I like to, you know, I assist at Mass. Um, somebody asked me if, after my wife died, they asked me if um, I was going to be a priest. And I, I don't think that's my calling. I think I like being a deacon because I think a priest gets too involved with the administrative work of the parish, and I really like getting involved with the other stuff, so. As far as grief, um, I met my wife when I was, at the end of our freshman year, we were both freshmen, at the end of our freshman year of high school. We dated all through high school and college. Um, My father talked to me when I was a junior in college, so it was about a year and a half we had been dating. And he said, I don't think you should see Eileen anymore. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, we think you're getting too serious. And I said, well, if we're going to be serious, it's going to be serious. There's nothing we can do about that. And he said, OK, well, you're spending too much money. And I said, well, I'm working. It's my money. What do you care? He said, OK, well, your grades are bad." I said, I'm getting the best grades i would ever had. Not that they were great, but they were the best <laughs> grades i <I've> would had. <laughs> And so the one thing he didn't say was, we're afraid you're having sex and Eileen's gonna, gonna have a baby when you're in high school. But if he knew Eileen at all, he knew that was never gonna happen, unfortunately for me. But um, <laughs> we finally, we got married when I got out of college. I was, uh, this was at the time of the Vietnam War. I was opposed to the war, and, um, but I wound up being 1A. So I managed to get into the Army Reserves where I served six years in the Army Reserves. Eileen and I were married, it would have been 45 years. Back last May uh, in 2015, Eileen got very sick and we thought it was the flu. And then all of a sudden her foot started hurting. So we took her to the doctor and the doctor thought it was the flu and maybe gout and he did some blood tests. That was on a Thursday. We went back on Tuesday. He said, "Um, I'm still not sure. I'd like to do either an MRI or a CAT scan. I'm not sure that when you're on social security, um, they kind of determine which comes first. So I'm not sure which it was, but he was gonna schedule one of those on Tuesday. Um, And he gave Eileen a, a whole big bottle of, I mean, 60 bottles of Hydra something, um, some kind of pain pill, Hydrocortin or something. Um, And so for the rest of that week, she was pretty much out of it. On uh, Friday, I said, let's not take any pills until I can see that you're aware of what's going on. And it worked. I mean, Friday, she sat up, she ate lunch, we talked, she was, everything was fine. She took a pill, and by three o'clock, she was so out of it, I was scared to death. So, I did call 911. We had talked to the doctor about going to the hospital, and he said, they wouldn't take you for what you have. So, um, but on, by Friday afternoon, I called 911. They came over, um, put her in the ambulance, and said that she had a 102 fever. And by the time they got to the hospital, it was 103. Um, They did some tests and found out that what she had was MRSA, a blood infection called MRSA, which is really bad. They started treating her for that, um, but they also were testing different areas where she had pain. And one of the places that they tested was her heart, and they found out that she had a growth on her valve um, and that they had to do open heart surgery. So we said okay to that. The open-heart surgery worked out better than what we thought. They said it would be about a four-hour operation. operation. turned out to be about two hours. They didn't have to replace the valve. They managed to take the bacteria off it, and it was only damaged, so they managed to repair it, and she was doing fine. Except that um, she was bleeding. Mm -hmm. Well, Eileen had always had this condition called HHT, which caused her to have nosebleeds all the time. Uh, So they blamed it on the HHT. They did an endoscopy and found out there were a few places where she was bleeding in her stomach. They managed to repair that, but she was still bleeding. They did another endoscopy and this time she had inhaled some blood into her lungs. And so she uh, actually died for about five minutes, but they managed to bring her back. They wanted to do, they asked about having a a clot, no. Some test, anyway. She had just had it and everything was clear. They said, well, we wanna go up to her upper GI and check that out. And they found it was bleeding so bad they couldn't even heal it. They just had to back out. They said, what we wanna do is um, cut out a, a section of her upper GI give her a colostomy bag and then in two months we'll repair that you know bring it back and I said what what is the guarantee with HHT that you won't bleed somewhere else and they said as we know with HHT there's no guarantees so I went in and I talked to Eileen and she said and this was I mean this was really beautiful and she said I don't want to go home in pieces and I knew she didn't mean back to the house she knew she was going to die then, and she just wanted to to be left alone and to die. We brought her back to the house, and Eileen has had seven has seven siblings, and of the seven, six were at the house with their spouses and and children and it was just unbelievable the amount of people that were there when they wheeled her into the room. there was this big cheer. Uh, and then they got her settled. Now, I thought she was going to die any minute. I mean, that was just, they told me at the hospital she could go any time. Well, the noise level, when you imagine all these people in the room, just kept getting higher and higher. And I finally said, I don't mean to be grouchy, but um, I haven't slept well, I haven't eaten well, and I'm, I'm just, but if we could take the party part out to the living room, and Eileen turned to me and she said, don't yell at my friends. So this is the kind of person that Eileen was. Um, she was on hospice while she was at home. They told me, um, they asked me if I wanted music ministry, which I had no idea what music ministry was. I thought it was somebody who would bring in a boom box and they'd pay some kind of elevator music just to keep her quiet. Uh, and actually on Thursday, a girl, little, cute little girl, shows up with a guitar and a music book and sits down and starts singing songs to her, taking requests. And Eileen knew what it, and she would clap and sing along as much as she was able to sing along. Mm. I do this when I preach, too. My mouth gets really dry. Um, And that Friday, which was, um, July 5th she passed away it, but it was a peaceful pe- uh, passing away it was just really a nice kind of going away but it didn't change the fact that I was now alone and we had had what I thought was an agreement that I would die first and she violated that agreement so uh, but it, w- it really was a peaceful kind of death we had talked about it a few months before even before she was getting sick but you know I think people know when they're gonna die I, I don't know how they know it or if they are even aware that they know it but we had talked about it a couple of months before and she said I'm ready to die which of course kind of insulted me I'm like what are you talking about you know don't you want to aren't you happy with me? And you know, what about the kids and the grandkids? And she said, no, it's none of that. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is my relationship with God, is that I am ready. I know that if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm like, okay, I, I can kind of understand that. And so, um, again, this kind of made the death a little easier on me. Um, since her passing away, I noticed uh, when I'd walk into my room um, there'd be a penny on the floor. And I don't keep pennies, I, you know, I just throw them away. So I don't know where these pennies were coming from. But I mentioned it to my daughter, I said, are you finding anything? And she said, are you talking about the pennies? And I'm like, yeah. And she was finding pennies too. So we knew, we know that Alain is still with us. We still find pennies. Um, We were putting up the Christmas tree and uh, Eileen hated putting up Christmas trees. I don't know why, but we managed to get one up and we both both finally sat down after it was all decorated and we looked down and there was a penny on the floor. Again, we have no idea, we do, but, and I know people, when I tell them this story, they're like, yeah, this guy's really crazy, but (laughs) that is what it was, so. What I wanted to talk to you um, today was um, how I've dealt with the grief or the loss. People deal with loss differently all the time. I mean, every person deals with it differently. My way of dealing with it has been um, to get involved, to start really doing things. And so that's why I volunteered at the hospital. So I volunteer. And it's the hospital where, where, Mission Hospital, which is I guess the only hospital in town, really. Um, and um, I get so much more out of it than I get into it. My other way of dealing with it is, is with humor, as you may have noticed. Uh, I try to just keep a smile on my face. It doesn't always work. Uh, there are times when I just can't take it anymore and I go into my room. Uh, I was a few months after she died, I was talking to a, a real good deacon friend of mine who's kind of like my spiritual director and I'm his spiritual director. We, and I said, you know, Bob, uh, I think I'm depressed. And he said, really? You think you are? You think? Go see a doctor. So, I went to my doctor and I said, you know, Doc, I think I'm depressed. And my doctor said, really? You think you're depressed? <laughs> So he gave me some pills for it and I was taking them until about a month ago and I decided that I didn't want to take them anymore because I didn't want to live my life that way. I, if there was going to be some pain, if there was going to be some hurt, if there was going to be some sorrow, I wanted to go through it and then and get, get past it. And so I haven't been taking them for a month and I feel like I'm doing okay. But again, everybody deals with it different, you know, and, and uh, like I thought I should be done with it after a few months, but uh, it, it just didn't happen. You know, people go for years with it. Hopefully, um, I'm dealing with that okay. The things that, that um, I have noticed is that people who were my friends uh, no longer talk to me. Um, they don't call. And I understand it. Um, nobody wants to just hear my story, or they don't know what to say, or they, they don't know how to talk about it. Um, and that's the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions about that. Um, when Bob and I get together, um, we, we talk about it all the time. Um, and he doesn't do it from a way like, oh, I understand how you're feeling. He has no idea how I'm feeling and he readily admits it. But what he does more than anything is he just listens. Um, so if people say, I don't know what to say, you don't have to say anything. I mean, if you run into somebody who has had a loss um, and you you know, I, I was telling David, I, you know, I, it's this kind of a young group to be talking about death and, and grief, but um, it can happen at any time there's a a death of a parent or death of a friend or a death of um, pregnancy or death of a child or even a miscarriage all these are losses that that have to be dealt with and a lot of them you're going to have to deal with at your age Um, and so i just want to say hang on to it Um, with my hospital work i also I do triage for um, the Basilica. In other words, if there's an emergency, all the hospital and the um, nursing homes and all the homes around, they know, they, they call me and they say, you know, I need a priest. We have an emergency. Um, we haven't, we had a kind of a slow week, but today we actually had about five or six people. And um, Father was telling me, that two of them that were called in for last rites, one was 33 and the other was 35. So, I mean, deaths do happen at a a young age. I don't exactly know what cause the death is. I don't ask uh, on that. Um, A lot of times they won't tell me because of the HIPAA rules, that's fine. It doesn't matter what they're dying of as long as they get the sacrament. Um, When I'm dealing with the hospital, a lot of times I deal with it with humor um, but every once in a while I get thrown, um, just Monday, a week ago, I uh, walked into the hospital room and there was a young man there, uh, fairly good looking, um, girl sitting by his bed and I jokingly said, well, you know, what, what are you in here for? You're way too young. And he told me something. I, I'm like, what is that? And here he had tried to commit suicide and the girl that was sitting with him was, she was just a care keeper or something. She was to make sure he didn't try it again while he was in the hospital. And it really threw me it, you know, it's very rare that I'm speechless, but that I really didn't know what to what to say. And finally I said, well, can, can I say a prayer for you? And he said, no, I don't think I need it, thanks. And it threw me again. It was like, I don't know what to say. So I said, well, okay, I'm not gonna force anything on you you know hope you get better and hope you have a nice life and turned around and walked out but um, and again I met with my spiritual director on the Tuesday after that and he said so what did you do I I said I walked out he goes you didn't smack him upside the head (laughs) no he said you didn't tell him about the 50 people that died in Orlando on Sunday no I didn't really think that was appropriate but um, and but I did go back on Wednesday (laughs) and he was no longer in the room. I wish I had, you know, he'd been there. I, I was gonna to try to amend my ways on things like that, so. Um, that is how I deal with grief. I don't know how you guys. It's just that I want you to, to be aware of, if there is a loss, please don't ignore that person. They wanna talk about it. All they want you to do is listen. They don't want you to make judgments. Um And there's no right or wrong with grief, you know. Uh, Be honest with them. Be terribly honest with them. Talk to them as though nothing happened, but you can talk about their loss. Bob and I talk about Eileen all the time. Uh, She wasn't um, a perfect wife, but she was really close to it. Certainly closer to being perfect than I am. Um, When I was in deacon school, they, they one of the classes, they talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I started thinking, I have no idea what my gift of the Holy Spirit is. I, you know, I really don't. But then the instructor started going down the rows saying, what's your gift? What's your gift? And I'm like, oh, my God. I don't know what to say here. So she finally got to me and she said, Phil, what's your gift of the Holy Spirit? And I said, uh, my gift is to get people to heaven. And she said, well, that's a wonderful gift. I said, yeah, I do it by making it hell on earth for them. So... <laughs> Um, so I know my parents and I know Eileen are all in heaven. Uh, there's just no doubt in my mind. And if, I, if I'm gonna grieve so much about it, then I'm kind of denying. I don't know how people go through grief without a belief in God, without knowing that they are somewhere where they're safe. I don't know how they do it. It's one of the only things that, that really keeps me going. Um, a lot of people will come up to me and say, my husband or my wife or my son is dying would you pray for them I will but I won't pray that they live because who am I to deny them you know eternal life with God if they're gonna die and go to heaven I'm not gonna I just pray that they don't have any pain um, in doing it and I pray for the person that has that loss that they can understand this loss and learn to deal with it so uh, does anybody have any questions on it? I know it's a tough thing. None at all? Well, let me read. I'll show you. This is, uh, this is a book that somebody gave me that, that really has helped me. It was I was teaching a class at the Basilica, and this couple found out that my wife had died. And they said, oh, we want to give you this book. We understand what you're going through. And um, <laughs> as terrible as I am, I judged him right away and said, no, you don't know what I'm going through because you're married still. Well, it turns out that he was a widower, she was a widow. They met after their spouses had died, got together, found out that they got along and, and got married. So they had both experienced this loss. And they said what helped them get through this, was this book on uh, healing after loss. And it's basically a daily meditation of working through grief. And it has. Yeah, you know there are times like I said when I go into my room I just pick up this book and I understand what's going on but this was one of my favorite readings and if I could I'll just read this to you it starts out with a quote from Dietrich Bornhofer he says we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God to me that was really that really said a lot because I felt like my life has always been Interrupted by God. I I always kind of It makes me think of the story of I think it was Isaiah who was wrestling with God on the mountain And it got to be dawn and God cheated and punched him on the hip and disappeared and I thought God's punched me in the hip so many times. I mean Coming from Philadelphia if you had told me when I was in high school that I would marry Eileen live with her for 45 years and then she would die and I'd wind up in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. I, I don't think I ever heard of Asheville. But, um, I mean, he punched me in the hip when he moved me down to Atlanta. He punched me in the hip when he decided I should be a deacon. He punched me in the hip when he moved me out to the parish. And he punched me in the hip again when he moved me to Asheville. I just feel like he, you know, and it's nothing I recognized then, but when you look back on your life, you can, you can see this. So he says, von, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. Who is ready? We have our plans, things we're looking forward to, life going on at its sometimes unpleasant but nevertheless predictable pace. And then something happens, like an accident or a death or an illness. It changes everything, forces us to reappraise our priorities and often reset our lives. People who have come close to disaster and been able to wheel free have shown a renewed appreciation for the simple pleasures of life, for the gift of each day, and a resolve not to put off pleasures or acts of kindness until another day, because another day may not come. We who have lost loved ones have also learned the value of simple gifts, of not putting off kind words or actions, Because we never know when events will change our world. The expected developments of our lives and the intended recipients of our kind words and actions may be gone. The preciousness of this day is its own gift. So I just ask you to remember that. Be kind to people, especially in this world as it is today. I know it's easy to get involved in that but we don't know what will happen the next day. We don't know when we're here, when we're gonna be here, if we're gonna be here, if our friends are gonna be here. Um, One of the things I tell people when they're getting married, um, there's a sign in the sacristy at the Basilica that says, and it's for the priest, it says uh, for the priest to say each Mass as it's your first Mass, your last Mass, your only Mass. And I think that can apply to us too with each day. I think we need to live each day like it's our first day, our last day, our only day, because it may be our last day that we have. It may be our last day with our friend, with our parents, with our children, whatever. We just never know. Uh, So just take that into consideration, and remember uh, one of the things it says in here is that um, there is no shadow without a light. And so to focus on the light, not let the shadow overcome us okay no questions all right I'm gonna finish my beer thank you very much oh wait go ahead yes ma'am yes Um, A friend of mine asked me to be a deacon many, many, many years ago when my children were still, I think one was in high school, one was in middle school, and I I couldn't do it then. I felt like raising my kids was what I needed to do then. But in uh, 2004, four of the people from my parish um, became deacons. And one of my neighbors just happened to say, when are you going to become a deacon? And I, you know, I just laughed, I didn't really think about it too much. But what I saw with the deaconate, and I should tell you, I'm, I'm um, probably what in the old days we would call liberal. And now I say I'm a progressive because they've kind of changed liberal to mean something bad. But um, all the deacons that I saw were very conservative and very much lived by the law. And I thought there could be something different. And I believe that, you know, that there are two laws. As Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. Um, and I think that's what the ten, ten Commandments. The first three commandments of the Ten Commandments are all about loving God, and the rest are about loving your neighbor. Um, and so I think that's the two laws, and that you need to act on it. Um, I didn't think the main role of the deacon was to assist at mass or to preach. I thought it was to be out in the world. Um, it's why one of the things why I like coming here. I just like to net, and it's not that I identify with your problems. I mean, I. 20 and 30 was a long time ago for me. Um, But I still think it's important that you see that there are clergy who are interested in you. You guys are the future of the church. Um, And so I just, I admire what you're doing here by being here today. And I just wanted to be here, if I could be of any assistance, um, like talking at the last minute. (laughs) Yes, sir. Pardon? What is sin? What is sin? Um, sin's a rejection of God or a rejection of your neighbor uh, is what I believe it is. Um, we had a, I went to a mission one time and they talked about the, uh, uh, that when we sin, God turns away from us. And, and the priest said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. If we think anything we do affects how God acts, that's crazy. But sin is when we ourselves turn away from God. And it's a simple act sometimes, sometimes not so simple, to just turn back to Him and say, I'm sorry. Um, I did something wrong. But I think sin is just turning away from God um, and being wanting for ourselves um, rather than for those around us. Loving ourselves rather than loving those around us. I mean, loving ourselves is an important thing, but, and I think that's the hardest part about loving others you know they say love your neighbor as you love yourself and sometimes we don't love ourselves as much as we should we don't realize that god dwells in us and is in us all the time and will help us get through anything such as grief Um, if i didn't have god in me around me through me everywhere um, i wouldn't have gotten through this death I told you that they gave Eileen this huge number of pain pills, they gave her like 60. She managed to take six of them and I was sitting there with 54 pain pills and I knew if I took them, all 54 of them, that I would never have pain again, that I would sleep for a long time. And I held on to those pills for about two weeks and finally I said I can't do this I, you know, and I threw them away. And somebody else said, "Do you know how much I could have got for on the street for those pills?" <laughs> but I, I, I couldn't see a deacon becoming a drug dealer. I could, but not me. So, to me, that's what sin is—turning away. Anything else? Is that it? Okay. Thank you all for your attention. I hope you've learned something from it. And I hope it helps you in lives. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Deacon Phil. Um, so this time we we generally have some table discussion, and I have a, a couple questions that you know might kind of uh, inspire some ideas for conversation. Um, the first is that Deacon Phil said that we often hit this block that we don't know what to say to someone who is grieving, um, and if you know you feel comfortable at the table, I mean obviously this is going to be a tough issue in general. So if you feel comfortable at the table talking about those times when you've encountered someone who's grieving. And you either like got over that to actually comfort them to either to be a listener, to try to say something and how did that go? Or if there's been that block, like why is that block there? And how do you think that you can overcome it? Um, So that's the first possible discussion question. When you encounter someone who's grieving, like what happens in your heart? Um, And if there's a block, how do you come over it? The second question, and you don't have to do all these. These are just like, you know, possibilities. The second one is he mentioned that um, you know throughout his life he's had times where he felt like God punched him in the thigh um, just like he punched Jacob in the thigh. Uh, C.S. Lewis when he was describing the grief of the death of his wife said it was like he felt like God had shut the door in his face. Um, that he felt like so many times when he was joyful he knew God's presence and then when he needed God the most he felt like he was absent. Um, so have there been times in your own life where you have felt like God has either sucker punched you or he's shut the door in your face? Uh, and again, if you feel comfortable about talking to this, like how did you get through that? Those times of, um, those times of grief or those times of suffering or, or that sense that God may have been um, either spiteful or absent. Uh, and then the last one is that, um, as he mentioned, we're young adults um, and Uh, you know, he did say to me, you know, like, well, I don't know how much, you know, grief is gonna relate. And I said, look, our parents are getting old. Um, I think part of being an adult is realizing not only our own mortality, but the mortality of the people that we always thought were gonna be there forever. And if you haven't dealt with it already, like, how are you preparing? Um, Or how do you think you can prepare? Or if you're facing, um, I mean, it's scary. There are times when I actually think about—I have a brand new son, three months old. You think at this point I would see nothing but life ahead of me, but there's times when I have absolute terror of the fact that he might die. Um, you know, suddenly we are faced with the fragility of life in ways that we've never faced before. Um, and in terms of that, like, what are you doing? Um, you know, how are you preparing? Or if you haven't thought about it before, like, is this an opportunity to explore that with people at the table? Um, So those are my three possible topics, or just, you know, talk about anything that grabbed your attention tonight. So um, encountering other people who are grieving, um, dealing with it when you felt like God has been absent from your grieving or your suffering, and how are you preparing for those fragile moments of life that may be coming up uh, as, you know, people coming into maturity, people who are are facing mortality in our own lives. So uh, yeah, go to. Thank you.